hi, welcome to my office. How's the weather today? You know, I check weather.com for the weather, or the weather page at cnn.com, or the weather channel on cable. Hardly ever just open my window, stick my head out, and check it firsthand anymore. Why not? Because I don't, I don't care to know how the weather is now. I want to know how the weather is going to be. You know, Jesus told kind of a weather channel parable once. Come on inside, I'll tell you about it. It's too hot out here. Come in, come in. Oh, much better. It was in Luke 12. Jesus was talking to this crowd. He said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. He was saying, you're smart. You've used your brains. You've figured things out. You've applied your powers of observation and determined patterns and mapped out predictions, and you've gotten really good at science. And it's more than just the weather. If Jesus were telling this parable today, he could talk about how science has deciphered our DNA, mapping the human gene, how we're cloning animals. We've developed a zillion drugs to correct thousands of different physical conditions. And, you know, if you go out in your backyard and stretch out by the pool, there are satellites that can literally take a picture of your face, a photograph so clear that you can be positively identified. Because of advances in science, our knowledge is awesome. Today we know that if you could drive to the sun at 55 miles an hour, it would take 193 years. And I would say, drive faster. 55, what's up with that? We know that a 75-pound octopus, because it has no backbone, can squeeze through a hole the size of a silver dollar. We know that the food making up a single bite of a Tyrannosaurus rex would feed a human family of four for an entire month. We know that a mosquito has 47 teeth. We know that the average lifespan of an umbrella is about a year and a half. And we know that I am really spending too much time on the internet. Science has revolutionized the way we live. We have an incredible array of products that didn't exist when we were born. Try to explain to a teenager that when someone my age was a kid, we didn't have VCRs and videos. We didn't even have 8-tracks when I was a kid. No cell phones, no microwave ovens. There were no PCs, no Palm Pilots. Digital? just meant that your clock had only numbers, no hands. Science has given us CAT scans and MRIs. We have sonogram and in vitro and test tube babies. Science can tell us the gender of our baby before birth and whether the baby's going to be healthy. It seems like science can tell us anything and everything we want to know. In fact, science has been able to tell us so much that we've gradually convinced ourselves in the past few generations that science is the only way to really know anything. Think about it. How should we eat? Well, what does the Journal of the American Medical Association say? What does Dr. Agatston of the South Beach Diet say? What's the daily minimum requirement of the vitamins and nutrients I need? How many complex carbohydrates do I need? What's my glycemic index? I might have a sense of what's good for me and what's not, but man, if I know what the scientists have determined, then I feel I really know how I should eat. Or child behavior. What do the uh, child psychologists say? When our children first arrived, my wife and I read the books by child psychologists, scientists devoted to studying the thinking and behavior of children, and people got so sick of hearing us say, well, the book says, you know, I might say or do something with my child and something in my gut says, hmm, that's not right. But man, if I just had the time to look up what the scientists have figured out, then I would really know whether my gut instinct was right or wrong, huh?
How should I live? I feel like the more science can tell me about how to live, the more I'll really know how to live. In fact, how many of us are actually holding our breath, hoping against hope that the scientists won't discover something that contradicts the Bible? Because man, oh man, how do you contradict science? Let's face it, science is the supreme court of knowledge. But this idea that science is the only way to really know things is actually a relatively new idea. Only in the past few generations have we come to this idea. And it's not God's idea. Actually, this view is a kind of religion which might be called scientism. Peter Kreeft is a professor at Boston College who's thought and written a lot about this phenomenon. And here's what he says, and I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit to make it clearer. Scientism holds that whatever science can't detect doesn't exist. It only allows for nature or the laws of nature. And he says this comes from wanting to weaken God, to make him less of a force in our thinking and in our lives. Dr. Kreeft says, in the old days, the pagans weakened the idea of God by cutting him into thousands of little pieces, making him into lots of little gods and goddesses. But now in our generation, we have a new streamlined scientific way to weaken God, and that is to flatten him out, to reduce him to nature or the laws of nature. The fact is, faith is very threatening to science because science is so limited in how it can prove things. Science has to be able to observe an event, recreate the, the event repeatedly in the form of experiments, observe these repetitions, measure the results, report on them, and make predictions on the basis of those results. <laughs> faith doesn't fit into that kind of grid. In fact, when you get right down to it, even the origins of life, evolution and creation, don't fit into that kind of grid. Science can't really tell us whether evolution or creation is true. All it can do is speculate. Dr. Kreeft says, well, he says it this way, and I observe this to be true in my own thinking, in my own, and in the thinking of many of my friends, both Christians and non-Christians, he says, we have an unscientific attitude towards science, a religious attitude towards science. We've come to believe that the only good proofs are scientific proofs, but there's no scientific proof that proves that only scientific proofs are good proofs. There's no way to prove by the scientific method that the scientific method is the only valid method. A scientific attitude examines all available evidence. In other words, if we're really going to be scientific and open-minded, we should consider things like faith. Now, of course, we don't want to be morons. We don't want to believe something that doesn't make any sense at all, something that's totally illogical. Here's the way Kreeft puts it. Logical thinking is not the only method. It's not the only string to our bow. Something has to be logically true to be true. But logical thinking isn't the only way to arrive at that truth. In fact, as Dr. Kreeft has poured over the scriptures year after year, he observes that we actually find answers to life's questions by five methods, not just one. From our own experiences, from other people's experiences, which include a, a lot of things like people telling you what happened to them, and history, and reports on scientific experiments, and so forth. From reasoning, which is actually just thinking about our experiences and other people's experiences, from imagination, which is a way of seeing things without experience, and from faith, which is 
trusting what someone else says, even if you can't imagine it. You know, it's possible for things to be true even if we can't see them, even if we can't experience them, even if we can't imagine experiencing them. The philosopher Pascal says it this way, everything that is incomprehensible does not cease to exist. And look, we have an example from our own lives. We have friends and family members who have died in the past. Well, what is going on with them right now? We can't see what's going on with them right now. We can't experience what's going on with them right now. We have very little word from others who have died about what they've experienced after death. We can hardly imagine what's going on with our friends and relatives right now. We're pretty much reduced to faith, trusting what God says about what's going on with our friends right now. Science can't help us with this. Does this mean it's not happening? No, it means science doesn't answer all the questions. If we come to put science on a too high a pedestal, we're missing opportunities to understand more of the truth and live a fuller, richer, more rewarding life. Now, Jesus kind of beats up on science in Luke 12, but as we study our way through his words and teachings, we find that he's just as hard on commerce, on money-making, he also comes down equally hard on high society, on social ladder climbing, and he comes down equally hard on people who lead in ministry but who let their pride guide their interactions with other people. In other words, Jesus warns us again and again, warns us relentlessly, warns, warns us fervently, be on your guard against anything that you put your trust in or make the top priority in your life because anything you put your trust in or make the top priority in your life that isn't God's thing is going to disappoint you or hurt you or diminish your life in some way or undermine the work of the kingdom or rob you of something better that God has planned for you. So this truth can apply to a lot of areas in our life. And actually, I wish Jesus had just left this parable real generic like that, but as usual, Jesus doesn't leave well enough alone. He goes the extra step and he really nails me where I live. Look at what Jesus says in verse 56 in his usual delicate way. Hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? In other words, what's happening in your life right now? You got a handle on all this global stuff. You got this big picture. You're an expert on the economy of the Asian subcontinent. You can crunch the numbers. You can do demographics and psychographics and market analysis and make computer models. And you have a well thought out view on political issues. And you've thought through your position on human rights and the environment and economics. And you have all these advances in science under your belt, but you don't have a handle on today, your own little world, how to live, how to be a success in the very next conversation you have with someone, how to be a success as a human being, how to get through the day without doing spiritual damage or emotional damage to yourself or someone else.
then Jesus brings it down to the one area where he knew we would have the most trouble. Not philosophy, not theory, just how to get along, how to love each other. Here's what he says. Why don't you judge for yourselves what's right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way. Or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus says in a way, this is not rocket science. You can know all about rocket science and still fail at life. He says in life, there are going to be problems and misunderstandings and disagreements and hurts between people. Learning how to make our way through this maze of relationship stresses and problems is very important. It's thing two of the two things that are most important in life. Loving God, loving people. From day to day in dozens of different settings and situations, we're going to have adversaries. Someone is going to say or do something that is wrong or unfair or cruel or stupid, and it's going to rile you. There's nothing wrong with that. If someone has wronged you, it's natural and appropriate to feel angry or hurt about it. You can follow Christ for three quarters of a century, like my friend Doris Brown. Or you can be a wild, devil-may-care pagan. And either way, if someone does you wrong, you're going to feel angry or hurt. The difference between Doris Brown and the rank heathen isn't how hurt or angry they feel. The difference between the Christ-following Doris Brown and the Christ-rejecting person should be how they act in response to the hurt and anger. Jesus comes back to this issue again and again and again, which tells us that as far as God's concerned, this is where the rubber meets the road. What he's interested in giving us isn't so much a lofty philosophical worldview or political power or social prestige or anything else. What he's interested in giving us is a way of getting through the day without getting beat up and without beating up on the other guy. And if he can give us that, since the whole world is beating each other up, then the world is going to know that we have something different. Why do you think Jesus said in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor? Why do you think 10 separate times in the New Testament alone we're told in these specific words, love one another? Because that's what really makes the difference for us, for those around us, for, for people to really be the church for the church to function effectively. How am I, I going to lead my friends to faith in Christ, to experience the joy of a relationship with God? By reciting a formula of four spiritual laws? Not if I don't have a lifestyle of love. By inviting them to a Compass DVD gathering? Well, not if they see me clobbering people or hear me bad-mouthing people the rest of the week. It's the lifestyle of love that will mark me as Christian and will mark what Christ has given me as something that people want. Jesus says in John 13, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 1 John 4 says no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, we testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. When people who love God get together, the devil gets panicky. We can expect him to camp out right in the middle of us and bring as many problems and conflicts as he possibly can. We'll find all kinds of ways to annoy each other. It's spiritual warfare, plain and simple. Ephesians 6 says our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the power.
powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not that if you have a conflict with someone, you're being influenced by the devil, but the devil is capable of throwing situations in our path. And I think it's fair to say that the enemy loves nothing more than to throw situations into our path that will get us into conflict with each other and have us respond in self-defeating, self-destructive ways instead of in the way that God has designed a biblical community to function. Not just because of the harm it does to the reputation of Christianity, but because of the harm it does to us as individuals, spiritually, emotionally, even physically. If you ever laying awake in the middle of the night because a conflict situation during the day? What does Jesus say in this parable? If you're in conflict, try hard to be reconciled because the price you pay for unreconciled conflict is huge. It's like going to jail and not being able to get out. He urgently wanted us to realize that our faith is not seminary level theological philosophy. It's just how we live our life, how we get through the day, how to talk and how to talk back, how we act and how we react, how we live hour by hour, conversation by conversation. God, help that to be our faith. Help us to realize how simple it is, but how complete it is. With every breath we take, with every step we, we take, help us, Father. I thank you. Amen.